All right, we're in Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 20 this morning. Yogi Berra was one of the uh, grace, greatest baseball players of all time. How many of y'all have heard of Yogi Berra? Okay, I think just about everyone has heard of Yogi Berra. He uh, won 13 World Series championships, three MVPs, multiple times he was an all-star. But one of the things he's most famous for is not so much what he did on the field, but the things he said off the field. Uh, in fact, some of the sayings he has, they're known as yogiisms. They're, they're really famous. Most of us have heard them. Uh, it ain't over till it's over. That's uh, attributed to Yogi Berra. Um, they're always funny statements because they're sometimes obvious or there's a contradiction in there. It says, always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't go to yours. Uh, one of the ones he said where he was giving directions to someone coming to his house, he says, when you come to the fork in the road, take it, right? Take it. Well, the, the, the phrase I want to jump off with today is this one. It's deja vu all over again, right? It's deja vu all over again. That's kind of funny because that's literally what deja vu means. Deja vu all over again. You ever feel like that? You're, you're, you're going through the Christian life and you're like, I feel like I've been here before. I feel like I've struggled with this particular sin before or this particular struggle before. And here it is again. I think probably any of us, if all of us, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have felt that sense of sort of deja vu, right? You're like, here I am and I, I thought I defeated anger and, and I've been getting victory over it, but here is it just reared its ugly head Again, this temptation that, that I thought I had, I had put to death, it feels like it's had a little bit of a resurrection. After living for a while in the Christian life, you'll, you'll find yourself reliving an experience a second time or struggling with an old sin or battling some kind of temptation. You know, wouldn't it be nice if the moment you put your faith in Jesus, all sin and temptation just disappeared? You're like, you believe in Jesus, you repent, and you're like, no more sin, no more struggles, no more temptation, no more battling the, the old nature, no more battling the flesh, and I, we just automatically are just, boom, brought up uh, several levels, uh, you know, quantum leaps to, to spiritual perfection. That'd be awesome, right? But that's not what happens. God takes us from the moment we are saved from our justification and then our glorification one day in the future, he, he works in our lives in the part in the middle. We call that sanctification, where he progressively works in our hearts and our lives using his word, using the power of his spirit to progressively make us more and more like Jesus Christ. And sanctification is a reality. If it's not happening in your, in your life, there's a good chance you're not actually a Christian. There ought to be growth and there ought to be real progress that's made where you can look back saying, man, I'm, I'm further along spiritually than I was 10, 15 years ago. But listen, this side of heaven, our sanctification will never be entirely perfect. Until we're brought into the presence of Jesus, there's still going to be a battle with sin. And there's going to be ups and downs. Now, the overall trajectory is going to be, is going to be up more like Jesus and, and hating sin and away from the sins we struggled with. But there are times where old sins do rear their ugly heads. And that's what Genesis 20 feels like. Genesis 20, look at the first couple of verses. And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country, towards the Negev, and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, if you've been with us on this, this journey through the life of Abraham, this should sound really familiar, because it is. Back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, there had been a famine, went down into Egypt, and he's like, man, my wife is just gorgeous. She's beautiful. If they know she's my wife, they'll kill me and they'll take her. Like, she's that good looking, looks to kill for. And so he goes down to Egypt and he tells everyone, yeah, she's my sister. 
So Pharaoh's like, hey, she's really good looking. I would like to marry her, have her part of my harem. And so Pharaoh kidnaps Sarah, brings her into his harem, and then realizes after God plagues everybody in his house that I think she's actually that guy's wife. And Pharaoh confronts Abraham and really, uh, really chews him out and then kicks Abraham out of Egypt, not after first giving him a bunch of stuff, sends him on his way back into Palestine. It really did not turn out well for Abraham. He's expelled from Egypt. He is shamed before Pharaoh. The name of God is somewhat dragged through the mud, as everyone knows. He's a follower of Yahweh. And here he is lying about his wife, not trusting God. We saw in that sermon, if you want to go back and listen to it on the website, how fear led Abraham to do some things that were really dangerous and foolish um, and very detrimental to his testimony and even to Sarah's safety. You'd think that after that experience, he's like, okay, I've been there, done that. That was a really dumb idea, and I'm not going to do that again. Uh, As long as we take learning the same lesson more than one time, in fact, most of us take learning that lesson more than two, three, four times before it finally gets down into our hearts. So we come to Genesis 20. It's deja vu all over again. Abraham struggling with a sin that looks like he had defeated. We haven't really seen him doing this since Genesis 12. Now, for sake of chronology, it's been decades, 25 years, since Genesis 12. Abraham has definitely grown spiritually since then. Right? We see him in the next chapter magnanimously giving the land, the, the pick of the land to Lot. We see him in Genesis 14 boldly taking a little force of men and defeating this invading army. Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And we see his faith growing and it's becoming more real and more steadfast. We see God giving him this promise of a son in Genesis 16 and coming into Genesis 17 and confirming that with the sign of the covenant. Genesis 18, he actually has God over to his house for a meal. Like, absolutely incredible, and engages in this incredible face-to-face intercession with Yahweh. Genesis 19, the, the, the righteousness of Abraham is affirmed in contrast to the sinfulness, the depravity of the city of Sodom, and even the fickleness of his nephew, Lot. We've seen real growth in Abraham's life. As we come into this, I want to point that out because I want to give you the idea that Abraham's life was one massive failure. And look, Abraham's a failure, and so am I, and let's all wallow in our failure this morning. That's not the message. The message is not to say that you never need to grow spiritually, but the message is this. We do indeed grow spiritually. We never achieve perfection. We do indeed grow spiritually, but there are times when we're going through the Christian life, we trip over our own shoelaces and fall flat on our face. And that is going to happen in your life. It's going to happen in my life. And when it does, how do we respond? Now, here's here's what I want us to see in Genesis 20, that God protects Abraham and Sarah. He protects them. He is a God who is a protector. We've been singing about that today. We open the service with Nahum 1-7. We sing, praise to the Lord of the Almighty, the God who shelters us under his wings. We sing, leaning on the everlasting arms, and we can rely on our protector God. John read Psalm 91 to us, a reminder, a declaration of God's protection. God is going to protect Abraham and Sarah in this, in their, even through this debacle. He protects you and me as well. We're like Abraham. We're living in the middle of our sanctification, that, that spiritual growth. We're in the middle of it. None of us have achieved perfection. If you're a Christian, you have left the city of destruction. Even the most mature, like Abraham, he's a mature, godly man, yet he still struggles with immaturity at times. Until Jesus comes back, every one of us, your believer in Jesus will be a mixture of godliness battling sin, the flesh 
and the Spirit. And yet, in spite of that, God's grace does not stop its work of transforming us. It will not be finally thwarted. Let's move through the scenes of this text. We read verses 1 and 2. I'm going to call this first scene deception. Deception. We see Abraham deceiving again. This is, this is the sin that he committed back in Genesis 12, and here he is falling back into it again. Now, verse 1, we see Abraham as a wanderer. He journeyed from thence. He's been in Mamre near Hebron. That's near about seven miles from modern-day Jerusalem. That's where he's been camping out for a while. That was the place where he saw the smoke coming up from Sodom in the previous chapter. But Abraham journeys again towards the south country, towards the Negev. He dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, so he's gone down almost into the Sinai Peninsula. And then he sojourned in Gerar. Gerar is in the modern-day Gaza Strip in the area that would be known as Philistia, the, the people who lived there later on called the Philistines. And so he goes to the city-state of Gerar. Uh, this is not a huge empire, but think city-state. Here's one city with a king who rules over it, maybe some territory around it. And there's sort of a play on words here. The, the name, the, the word sojourn, so say Abraham sojourn, the verb there is ger, right? And the name of the place he goes to is gerar. There's a play on words. So he sojourns in a place called sojourn. Um, what does sojourning mean? It means you, you don't actually live there. It means that you're just passing through. He's a, he's a pilgrim, like, like you and me. This world's not my home. We need to remember, remember that. This is not the, the final home for us. We are aliens. We are strangers. You're a citizen of the United States of America, but you have dual citizenship this morning. You're also a citizen of heaven. And the citizenship in heaven is more primary and more fundamental for us than citizenship in our own country. Our identity is being in Christ more than it is even being an American or even more than it is our political identity. We need to remember that. People lose sight of that and find their identity in things that, that are not necessarily the same as our citizenship in heaven. Verse 2, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife. Notice the, the text objectively says she is Sarah, his wife. Okay, the, his little ruse here is not going to be, he's not going to pull the wool over anybody's eyes here. He's not deceiving Moses. The Holy Spirit is not affirming this or being like, yeah, she's kind of his sister. No, he says of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, Sarah's 90 years old at this point. Chances are he's not taking her because she still looks like a model. In fact, she said in Genesis 18, she says, I am worn out. Uh, she's, she regards that age as her years have caught up with her. This probably has more to do with, with Abimelech saying, okay, Abraham's a pretty powerful guy. Right? He went out and whooped that army in the field. He's, he's got tremendous wealth. I would like to have an alliance with him. And what do you do in the ancient world when you want an alliance? You, you create marriages. You enter into covenant that way. So Abimelech thinks, hey, I'll marry this guy's sister, and then he'll be an ally, he'll be a protector, he won't be a threat that I'll have to worry about. And so he goes and he takes Sarah. Now, that name of Bimelech simply means my father is king. Uh, that may help us because we get to Genesis 26. Uh, Isaac does the same thing as his dad, Abraham. And there's another guy named Abimelech. It's just a title, kind of like Pharaoh, my father is king, and your son becomes king, and he says, hey, my father is king, and that goes on and on. So we see this deception, we see this lie, and the question I want to ask is, why does this happen again? Right, in Genesis 12, Abraham should have learned that God was quite capable of protecting him without him resorting to a lie. But here he is, maybe feeling threatened, maybe feeling endangered, and he falls back to the same old deception he had used before. It's been decades since that debacle in Egypt, but here's deja vu all over Again, And here's Abraham, a man who is indeed advanced in his faith. Don't look at Abraham as this immature, carnal Christian who never does anything right. He's a godly man, but falling back into an old sin. 
So why does this old sin resurface? Well, it's what happens to all of us. We all have weaknesses in our lives, sins that we are sort of more prone to than others. You may say, man, I've never been tempted with drunkenness. But you have been tempted repeatedly with deception. Or you say, you know what, lying to people, that's not really something, I have no trouble telling people the truth. But you know what, talking about people behind their backs, that's a struggle for me. We don't all struggle with the same sins. Now, we all have the potential to struggle with any sin, but it doesn't mean that we struggle all with the same sins or everyone struggles with every sin. We have certain sins that we have a propensity to. It seems that Abraham had a propensity towards deception. He's a, he's a pretty smart guy. When this, when this feature of Abraham's character is sanctified, God uses it for tremendous good. Remember back in Genesis 14, he has this incredibly brilliant strategy of, of, of going at night and attacking the enemy forces and ambushing them. God uses this ability, this, this wisdom that Abraham has for his own glory. But don't we all understand that wisdom when it is unsanctified, can turn into conniving deception, right? Oftentimes our greatest weakness could also be our greatest strength. So someone who's like very outspoken and bold also has the potential to be a real jerk to people, right? We, we understand that, like, man, if that were pointed in the right direction, that could be used for the glory of God. But you also tend to be a little bit harsh. Those of us who tend to be, actually, I don't include myself in this. Those of you who tend to be very loving and, and you love people and you enjoy relationships, there's a danger, that turns into tolerance of sin and indulgence where indulgence ought not to be given. Those who have a very clear sense of right and wrong, black and white, can be harsh and judgmental when it is unsanctified. Here it is with Abraham. His wisdom could be used for God's glory when it's used under the authority of God. When it's unsanctified, we see Abraham doing some, some crazy stuff, lying to Pharaoh, lying to Abimelech, coming up with this conniving scheme to, to get Hagar pregnant and try to perpetuate his line through her. What's the issue here? Abraham falling back into the struggle of his old ways. We're always in danger of that. We should never get to a point, beloved, where we think, ah, I've got that sin mastered, or I've got that struggle completely defeated. I can let my guard down. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 10? Ye who stand, take heed, lest you what? Lest you fall. So Abraham's struggling with his old sin of trusting himself. This great man of faith who at times demonstrates tremendous reliance and confidence in God sometimes can fall back onto relying on himself and his own schemes. So Abraham here falters. He sacrifices his integrity on the altar of his safety. I think this is just a case of him once again saying, you know what, I don't want to cross Abimelech. I don't want to cross Pharaoh. And so I'll lie about Sarah. And and here his wife now pays the price for his lie. What lies behind most of our lies? Usually an attempt to protect ourselves. Right? I don't want people to think bad of me, so I will lie to them. Or I don't want people to really see how, how bad this problem is in my life, so I'll, I'll cover it up and I'll tell everyone everything's great. Behind every lie is often a sense of pride and a desire to want to look good to people, to look better to people than we really are. Lying often is driven by a desire to remain in control and protect our situation, protect our reputation. See, if you struggle with the sin of lying and deception, you've got to peel back the layers and see what's really going on here in my heart. So as Abraham's herds grazed in the region of Gerar, Sarah was taken into Abimelech's harem. Abraham's deception had once again backfired massively. To protect himself, he had lied. Abraham's not looking like a, a great paragon of virtue and integrity at this point. 
Now, we would think maybe God would say, Abraham, you know what, you did this once, that's okay, but second time, this one's on you. But God does not do that in his grace. He intervenes, which brings us to the second scene, which we're going to call intervention. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister, and she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he's a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know thou that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. So God now intervenes into this situation. This dream that Abimelech has, I think this is probably the very same night. I don't think this goes on for months and months. I think this is very soon after he takes Sarah. God's going to intervene here to protect Abraham and to protect Sarah and even protect Abimelech from sinning further against Sarah. What a mess this is. Abraham's deception has led to Sarah's abduction and it's even put the promises of the fulfillment of God's promises in jeopardy. God has literally just told Abraham through you and through Sarah, you're going to have a son within the next year. Listen, that's not going to work if Sarah is stuck in some guy's harem. Or if even worse, she has a child by Abimelech, right? The, the, the entire promise of God to have a son through Abraham from a human perspective is in jeopardy. Now, we know from a divine perspective, God always accomplishes his purposes. He will not be thwarted by either man's sin or failures. But there's a lot at stake here. And so God intervenes and he graciously appears to Abimelech in a dream. By the way, God does that at certain times in the patriarchal period. They don't have the written word of God to know God's mind and will on matters. So God at times would reveal himself directly. What a comfort to know that God's promises are so secure that not even our failures, not even our faithlessness can thwart them. Not even our lies can undo his truth. And so God's going to see to it that Sarah is going to be released and protected. So notice the first word from God here in verse 3. You're a dead man. He says to Abimelech, you're a dead man. Now, even though Abimelech did this in ignorance, the fact of the matter is he has taken another man's wife, a woman who has been united by covenant to another man, another man's wife. He has taken her, and that is objectively wrong. Taken another man's wife. What a serious warning. He says, you are a dead man. The wages of sin is death. I think Abimelech had this idea, well, I'm the king. I can take whoever I want, add women to my harem. I'll just, I'll just go take her. I'll just go kidnap her. Now, Abimelech, I think in this story, in many ways, is more upstanding than Abraham. But the way that God speaks certainly sees some culpability on Abimelech. He regards Abimelech as having done something that brings divine judgment. In, in verse 17, look down here. Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. God had brought some kind of judgment on the house of Abimelech because he had taken another man's wife. And so God comes to him graciously to warn him. If Abimelech had followed through on what he wanted to do, he would have been committing adultery. He would have been committing adultery. Now notice how he responds in verse 4. It says, Abimelech had not come near her. 
He had not had relations with her. And he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister. And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. So Abimelech now defends himself. And he he raises some good points. God will agree with him in verse 6. God said to him in a dream, uh, verse 6, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart. In other words, this was not an intentional, I'm going to go and commit adultery. He did not know that she was married to Abraham. So important piece of uh, the story here, he had not come near to her. Then we find out that if he had had the opportunity, he would have. God had restrained him from doing so. But Abimelech asks the question, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation? What does that remind you of? That reminds you of Abraham himself, just a couple of chapters before, saying, Lord, will you slay the righteous with the wicked? Here, Abimelech has almost taken the place of Abraham in being the righteous man in the story. Earlier, it's Abraham saying, God, would you really destroy Sodom and all the righteous people who are there with the wicked? And and he says, the judge of all the earth will do right. Now, here it is Abimelech appealing to the sense of justice in God. Now, Abimelech, by all indications, is not a believer in Yahweh. He is a polytheistic pagan king. But he understands this as God who is speaking to him is God. And as God, he must be just. If there is a God, if there is a supreme God, one of the characteristics he must have is justice. And it wouldn't be just for God to obliterate the entire nation because of the failure of one man. By the way, you see something else about Abimelech's heart. He's not simply concerned about himself. He's concerned about his people. This is a mark of a a good ruler. He's not concerned simply about himself and his own well-being and his own ego and his own pride and his own reputation. He's concerned about how that affects the nation. And here's Abimelech, even though he's not a believer in the one true God, saying, God, I'm concerned about my people. Will there be judgment that comes on them because of what I have done? He recognizes that the sin of the ruler affects the entire people. The morality of the ruler affects the entire nation. Said he not unto me, verse 5, she's my sister. And she, even she herself had said, he is my brother. He says, I had no idea. They both lied to me. This wasn't just a lie that Abraham Presented, But this was something that Sarah was in on as well, that the two had conspired to lie to him and to deceive him. So he pleads ignorance. He says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands have I done this. He says, I did not mean to do something evil. My heart was in the right place, and I did not intentionally sin with my hands. Now notice how God responds in verse 6. God's in him in a dream. Dream, yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart. So God agrees with Abimelech's defense. God doesn't come along and be, no, you're a liar. No, Abimelech, he says, I understand. I, I recognize, Abimelech, that you were not intentionally trying to take another man's wife. However, for I also withheld thee, restrained thee from sinning against me. Therefore, I suffered, therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. He's saying, Abimelech, the only reason why you did not sleep with her and actually commit adultery is because I prevented it from happening. I restrained it. Abimelech was telling the truth. God knew that. Abimelech had avoided serious sin, but it wasn't because of some righteousness in his heart, but because of God's gracious restraint. Victor Hamilton notes this, Only the restraining providence of God, rather than any moral vigor on Abimelech's part, deterred Abimelech from sleeping with Sarah. All right? So in this story, God is omniscient saying, I I know your heart, but he's also omnipotent in saying, I prevented you from doing the sin that you would have done otherwise. Notice this in the text. I also, in verse 6, withheld, restrained thee from sinning against me, against 
me. We, we would read the story and be like, well, if Abimelech had, had done this, he would have been sinning against Sarah. He would have been sinning against Abraham. But God says, no, the sin here is ultimately not against Abraham or Sarah or even Abimelech. The sin is against Yahweh. It is against God who is infinitely holy. That is what makes sin, beloved, so serious. Our sin, every sin we commit, yes, it is against other people, but ultimately is against God. Say, so, uh, adultery, it's just an affair, it's just a private thing that just I, I'm doing. No, it is a sin against God. It's a sin against Jehovah, the God who creates the law, who, who gives the law. And we, when we break the law, we're saying, I don't care what the lawgiver says. That's what makes sin serious. It's not simply committed against other people, but against a holy God. And our God is holy, he is infinite, he is perfect, he is loving, he is righteous, and every sin is an affront to him, which is why we need the Christian gospel. We need the Christian gospel not because we're just sort of imperfect people who need a little bit of help being better, but because we are people who have sinned against an infinitely holy God, and we deserve his wrath and his judgment, and our only hope is going to come from rescue outside of ourselves through Jesus Christ. What's incredible is God's grace shown to Abimelech in restraining his sin. Oh, how often has God kept you and I from committing sins that we would have otherwise wanted to commit? In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about the, the sin of adultery. He says, you've heard it's been said in the old, old time, do not commit adultery. He says, but I say unto you, if you look at a woman to lust after in your heart, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, what you think in your heart, even though if you, even if you don't take it all the way through to its, its natural conclusion, even if you don't act on that desire, that desire shows what you would have done if you could have gotten away with it, right? That's what you, we think about the sins that we desire in our hearts. We're like, oh, I better not do that for any number of reasons. What will people think of me? Or I could go to jail if I do that. Or it will hurt my reputation. What we desire in the heart is what we would do if we could get away with it. And how often does God keep us from acting out the desires of our hearts? Praise God for the bridles that he puts on us to keep us from running further after sin. Praise him for the times that he restrains us from taking action on the, the wicked inclinations of our soul. And listen, we can't even take credit for that because it is God who is restraining us from engaging in those sins. You say, well, I'm, I'm not a horrible person this morning. I'm not a, a drug addict. Is that because you are a morally upstanding, righteous person in your heart? Or is that just because God restrained you from ever going down that path? There are a thousand sins that we could all be guilty of and enslaved to, yet God in his mercy and his grace has restrained us from doing those and engaging in those. We can take zero credit for anything that's good in us. Even if it's just the external bridle God places on our sin through the law and through our fear of man, even that is a grace from God. This ought to humble us in recognizing that even when we avoid the worst expressions of sin in our hearts, even that's because of God's grace. We all have the capacity. We all have the inclination to commit heinous sins, and yet God restrains us from doing them. That ought to humble us. So before you get up on your high horse being like, well, I would never do this or this or this, and at least I'm not as other men are, even this tax collector over here, realize it is God's grace that has prevented you from becoming that in the first place. And that pride itself and those desires themselves are sins against a holy God that must be atoned for. So God gives him now an instruction in verse 7. He says, restore the man his wife, 
for he's a prophet and he will pray for thee. So there is a real offense that Abimelech has taken. He has objectively taken another man's wife. There, there, is, there is guilt that he has occurred, incurred on himself. He says, Abraham's a prophet. He will intercede for you. He will pray for you and thou shalt live. And now here's an ultimatum. If thou restore her or not, know that thou shalt surely die. Thou and all that are thine. That's a pretty serious statement. Saying, restore Sarah or die. Your sin committed in ignorance can be remedied if you restore her and you seek for forgiveness. But if you don't, you've committed a capital offense. Adultery is a serious sin in the eyes of a holy God. Sin in our culture today, just, eh, it's not a big deal. That God looks at it and says, this is a serious sin. The wages of sin, all sin, is death. Now, for the first time in the Bible, somebody is called a prophet. A prophet, a spokesman for God, someone who declares the mind and the will of God. And here's Abraham. He's, he's in less than a glorious moment in his life, and God's like, he's a prophet. He holds the office of a prophet, someone who intercedes with me, someone who declares my will. And Abraham, the prophet, will pray for you. He will intercede for you. Anticipating Moses, who would later intercede for his people, and Amos, who would intercede for his people, and Jesus Christ, the ultimate prophet, who intercedes for his people before the throne of God above. But we look at Abraham, we're like, what a lousy prophet, right? He's going around lying to everyone about who his wife is and getting, the, getting himself into this pickle. Like, what's the deal here with this? Well, I think on, on one level, this, is, this makes me long for the true and the better prophet. Okay, here's Abraham, an imperfect prophet, someone who we're like, we wouldn't really want to emulate him here. An imperfect, a sinful prophet. Makes us long for the one who is going to be the perfect interceder, who's going to be the perfect prophet on behalf of his people, and that is Jesus Christ. Here's Abraham who lies. We have Jesus who always speaks the truth. Here's Abraham who is flawed, but we get Jesus who is flawless. When we read the Old Testament, we see these imperfect people that God uses. It ought to create a longing in our hearts for, well, here's David. He's a king. But man, he's a king who's riddled with sin. We're longing for a better king, and that's King Jesus. We're looking for a better prophet, and that's Jesus. We're looking for a perfect priest, and that's Jesus. All of our longings, all of our hopes find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So God here intervenes to protect Abraham by his grace. Later on, the psalmist in Psalm 105 will reflect on this. Listen to these words in Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is one of these glorious psalms that recount the history of Israel, of how God has protected and led and sustained his people over their history. Look at verse 12. When they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Here's God saying, I intervened in the affairs of nations to protect my people, even restraining kings from lifting their hand against them. Not because Abraham deserved this. I think we need to get that very clear. This is not because Abraham was just God's like, man, I am so impressed with Abraham, but because God had set his grace and his love on Abraham in spite of Abraham. What an amazing declaration of God's protection in this Intervention from God. We return now to Genesis 20, and we see this third scene. 
we see a confrontation. So Abraham's deception gets him into a bunch of trouble. God now intervenes to protect Abraham, to protect Sarah, and even to protect Abimelech from further sin. Verse 8, Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants, that would be all of his officials, and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee, that thou hast brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou, that thou hast done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister, she is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me at every place whither we shall come. Say of me, he is my brother. This confrontation, Abimelech gets up early in the morning, first thing. As soon as he wakes up from the dream, he's like, man, I've got to make this right. I really like Abimelech in this situation. Abimelech is displaying an earnestness in pursuing repentance. He realizes things are not right. He says, I'll do whatever it takes to make them right. He doesn't come along to Abraham and say, hey, Abraham, let's kind of step aside here and very quietly, here's your wife back, and here's, you know, we'll just do this hush-hush, here's a a non-disclosure agreement, sign this, I'll sign this, it never happened. No, Abimelech does this publicly. Verse 8, he calls his officials and tells them everything. That's incredible. Like, how often do, do, do we do this, right, in our lives? God confronts us with sin in our lives. He exposes sin in our lives. And we're like, oh, I don't want anybody to know about this. And we don't want to confess publicly where the, the sin is a public sin. Abimelech acts quickly. He takes God's message seriously. And he confesses. Now, notice how they respond. All the men were sore afraid. They are like, we have wronged the God of Abraham. And we're afraid of what the consequences may be. Now, that really contradicts what Abraham says down in verse 11, that that there's no fear of God. They obviously do revere and fear God. So Abimelech's public confession in verse 8 really stands in contrast to Abraham's sneaky deception in verse 2. It expresses true repentance. And here's a pagan king with more integrity than this great saint of God in this instance. What is remarkable to me is Abimelech and the people of Gerar readily repented at just the words of a single dream. Right? That's quite incredible. One dream, you'd be like, you know what? He ate something bad for dinner last night. Let's explain that away. Like, eh, let's, it's just Abraham's God, not a big deal. They repent at a single dream. Yet, there's likely someone sitting here in this room, you've heard the gospel. Many, many times you have the 66 books of the Bible. You have the witness of gospel-preaching churches all across the city throughout your life, and you've not been willing to bow the knee to Jesus and recognize yourself as a sinner. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for we who have access to God's truth and still reject it. We've got the very Son of God incarnate and testified of in writing, and we often neglect it. So verse 9, Abimelech now confronts Abraham. He's going to use a word five times the word done. What have you done? 
You've brought a great evil on me and my kingdom. Thou hast done deeds that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? Abimelech is morally outraged that Abraham would lie to him in such a way that would lead Abimelech to the very brink of moral catastrophe. He highlights the duplicity of Abraham's deception and he communicates complete dismay. Abimelech asks, how have I sinned against you? In other words, what did I do to you to make you do such a horrible thing to me, to make me almost commit adultery with your wife? Abimelech is rightly outraged at how Abraham has treated him. He says, you've caused me to almost commit, verse 9, a great sin, adultery, a serious sin. This is not just a little oops, we'll fix that, but adultery, a major sin in the eyes of a holy God. He points out, you've, you've sinned against me and on my kingdom. Your sin, Abraham, has influenced not only me, but my entire household, my entire kingdom. You see, Abraham knew the one true God, and he fell short of God's standards. That's what we call hypocrisy. And we as Christians are very open to the charge of hypocrisy because we uphold very high moral standards, but still have a very fallen nature. And so there's a big gap between what we confess and what we actually do, and the world notices that, right? Our goal as Christians is to to, to, to narrow that gap as much as possible to where there's not a major gap between what we say we ought to do and what we actually do. Here at this point in Abraham's life, the, the gap is wide open between what he would affirm is true because of his faith in God and what he is actually doing. But I hear behind the voice of Abimelech, though I don't think he realizes it, is the voice of God calling Abraham to renewed repentance. Here's Abimelech. He's a pagan king. He's just expressing his moral outrage. But through his voice, God is speaking to Abraham, being like, Abraham, what are you doing? You're trusting yourself rather than me. You're relying on your deception rather than on my ability. I think sometimes we have a tendency to shoot the messenger. Sometimes the world will look at the church and be like, where's the love? Where's the the generosity of which you Christians speak so much? And it's easy to say, well, that's that's coming from an article in the New York Times. There are a bunch of crazy people who don't love God. They have nothing to say to us. But the question we need to ask ourselves when we get critiqued by the world, when we get critiqued by unbelievers in the workplace, when we get critiqued by neighbors who don't know Jesus, is what they are saying, is it true? Yes, it may be done as a way to try to dismiss the Christian message, but is there any sense in which I can learn from what is being said? Could it be that God is speaking through this pagan king to get my attention? Just because someone is saying something and they're not a Christian does not make everything they say automatically false. What Abimelech is saying here is true. Later on, there's another example. King Josiah, good King Josiah, a godly King Josiah, foolishly goes out to to, to pick a fight with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to him, why are you fighting me? I'm not really the enemy, but Josiah's like, I want to fight you anyway. And he dies on the battlefield. How different could have Judah's history been had Josiah been willing to hear God's words spoken through a pagan king? Maybe we have something as the church to learn when the world critiques us and says, look at the hypocrisy. We can say, ah, oh, they're, just, they're just trying to you know, pick on us and call us. Well, they very well may be, but let's not give them ammunition, right? Let's not give them ammunition to shoot at us. Let's, when we hear people call out, call out sin in our lives, call out hypocrisy in our lives, let's take a good look in the mirror and see, is it true? Now, Abraham 
is going to try to excuse his behavior. It's really quite pathetic in verses 11, 12, and 13. Abraham has sunk quite low in this moment. You're going to hear him bumbling his way through this, the, these excuses that he makes. He's going to give three excuses for his behavior, and I think three excuses that you and I are still want to make today when we get called out on our sin. Here's the first one. Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. We'll put it this way. Excuse number one is fear. Say so these people are a bunch of pagans. They don't follow the morality of Yahweh. They'll kill me because they want Sarah. Uh, it's quite an irrational fear, as we find out. We find out that Abimelech's actually a pretty decent dude, and Abraham's fear is completely misplaced. But excuse number one that we make in our hearts to be like, well, my sin is actually not that bad, is fear. This response is full of convoluted moral gymnastics and nauseating self-justification. It's few things as shameful as a righteous man trying to justify his unrighteousness. So this is a helpful autopsy into our own hearts when we try to justify our sin. He says, people in Gerar, they don't worship the one true God, therefore they are dangerous. And because they're dangerous, I've got to morally compromise to counter the danger that they pose to me. You see, if we can convince ourselves that our neighbors are a threat or that we are in danger, we quite often can excuse all kinds of things that are morally wrong. I've seen it this way. Christians will be like, well, I'm going to tolerate using profanity in political arguments because the, my opponents do the same thing. Uh, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to go ahead and say this right now. Would Jesus really be okay with let's go, Brandon, knowing what that stands for? Love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Bless and curse not. That's obviously a euphemism for cursing someone that maybe you have a political disagreement with. What says, why, why do people tolerate that? They'll say, well, what you know, the president is doing we don't agree with, and we think it's a threat and a danger, so that excuses using profanity. Hey, just because the other side does something does not mean that we get to do it. Just because there's no fear of God in Gerar does not mean that we get to stoop to the level of the pagans. Right? We're, we're Christians. We're called to follow the way of Christ. And fear can excuse all kinds of immorality and sin. Think about the times that you have done things that you're ashamed of. How often were those driven by fear? Right? The decisions you look back on in the Christian life, and you're like, man, that was a horrible decision. I shouldn't have done that. The decision was driven by fear. We very rarely, if ever, make God-honoring decisions when we make decisions based in fear. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid of losing my job, so I won't share the gospel over here. Or I'm afraid of offending someone over here, so I won't say the truth to them. What a tragedy. What, what an act of selfishness and hatred for us to say, I'm not going to declare God's truth to someone because they might get mad at me. That, that is not an act of love. That is an act of selfishness. Decisions we make in fear are rarely God-honoring decisions. So Abraham's first excuse is fear. And really what's at the bottom of this is he's not trusting God in this moment to protect him and Sarah. God's made promises to him. Abraham, you're 100 years old. Your wife is 90. You're going to have a kid. Listen, a God who can give you a kid at 90 can probably protect you when you go sojourning through Gerar, right? And Abraham had forgotten the power and the majesty and the might of his God and saw rather the greatness of the fear of this king of Gerar. He'd misread the situation terribly. He had misread the people opposed him, saying they have no fear of God. There's nothing good at them. I need to be terrified of them, and I'm going to compromise because I'm afraid of them. And it was a tragic decision. Here's the second justification, verse 12. It's technicality. 
She is my sister, the daughter of my father, and not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Say, well, technically, she's a sister of sorts. Maybe a, a half-sister, or some would say, you know, father and sister are broad terms, a cousin. Say, well, she is technically related in some kind of way to me, and so I'm not totally lying by calling her my sister, except the point of that deception is to get people to think that she's not his wife. That's the only reason why you give that. Abraham deceived about the most obvious issue that she was his wife, and he has abrogated his husbandly responsibility to protect his wife in a pathetic attempt to save his own skin. So what's Abraham trying to do in verse 12? He is trying to self-justify, trying to get himself declared righteous. Right? I want people to say, honestly, I'm actually righteous, and I'm going to do it based on maneuvering all of these technicalities like a, like a lawyer in a courtroom. you like, well, technically this and this and this. When we don't look to God to justify us, when we don't look to Christ and his finished work to be the sole ground of our being declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God, we will resort to all kinds of lawyerly tactics to try to make ourselves look better than we really are. So when sin is confronted in our lives, if I'm not saying, I am a sinner who is justified before God, I'm a beggar, it is true, that is what I am. When I forget that and sin gets brought to my attention, I'll be, wow, it's really, let me defend myself. Someone who understands that they are a sinner saved by God's grace does not need to resort to these kinds of defensive tactics. Someone comes along and says, Sam Sinclair, you're a sinner. You've done this, this, and this. We can honestly respond, and a thousand times worse, and I deserve infinitely worse. I deserve hell. I deserve God's wrath. And so I am far worse, not far better than you think I am. Often our response is someone comes along and they put their finger on a nerve of, hey, there's some deception, there's some sin here in your life. And we say, well, I'm actually better than that. No, the reality of the gospel is you're actually worse than that. And the only claim you have to being righteous before God is Jesus. So I think Abraham lost sight for just an instant that Abraham believed God and God counted it him for righteousness. He was declared objectively righteous in the eyes of a holy God. No need to try to self-justify because God has already justified. And there's a third excuse he makes. Verse 13. When God caused me to wander from my father's house. By the way, now he's almost bringing God into it. The woman thou gavest me. Well, God's the one who should have made me wander. And by the way, the way this is worded in the Hebrew is, okay, Elohim is plural, but the verb here is also plural. It's almost when the gods made me to wander. He's almost stooping to the level of a polytheistic pagan meal. Well, when the gods made me to wander. Just, just really an awful place for Abraham to be, of acting as if there's multiple gods. When God made me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you'll show unto me. At every place we shall come, say of me, he's my brother. Sarah, if you really love me, tell everyone that I'm your brother. So it's sort of like domestic blackmail. If you really love me, you're going to do this. And Sarah, being the, the submissive wife she is, goes along with it. Now, she probably should have said, no, Abraham, I love you too much to lie for you. That's the kind of wife you, 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 need to, you, you want. Women, women, that's the kind of wife you need to be is, honey, I love you too much to cover for your sin. I love you too much to allow you to go down a path of self-destruction. But what Abraham is basically saying to Abimelech is, Abimelech, don't take it personally. I do this to everyone. Right? Like, Why are you being such a jerk to me? Uh, it's not just you. It's everyone. As if that justifies, you know, being nasty to people. Don't take it personally. I, I'm, I'm mean to everyone. Basically, what he's saying is, I have always done it this way. Precedent. Precedent. Maybe the first time Abraham told that lie, there was a little twinge of conscience that was like, the second time, less 
The third time, less and less to the point, was like, man, if it really bothered God, he would have said something about it, right? We can sin over and over again to where we become deceived by our own deceptions, where we begin to believe our own press, where we begin to buy the lies that we initially tell ourselves. The first time we sin, we have to tell ourselves some lies so we don't feel so bad. It's really not that big of a deal. Everybody does this. It's not a, not a massive deal. You know what? I, I've gossiped my whole life, and it's never really caused any trouble. Or I can sleep with my girlfriend because everyone does it and God doesn't punish. Oh, sin is so deceptive. Sin is so deceptive. And the longer we engage in it, the more self-deceived we become. And what once pained our consciences now seems normal. But at this point... Abraham's witness has been marred. But thankfully, in God's grace, his sin has been exposed for what it is. God's protecting him. God's protecting Sarah. God's protecting Abimelech. Which brings us to this final scene, which we're going to call restoration. In spite of Abimelech taking a woman who's not his own wife, and in spite of Abraham lying about his relationship with Sarah, and Sarah being... In fact, nobody's really absolved from guilt here. Notice how God ends the story. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them unto Abraham and, here's the key point, restored unto him Sarah, his wife. So everything God told him to do, you better restore. Abimelech's like, happily, I will restore Sarah. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before thee, dwell where it pleaseth thee. So what's going on here is Abimelech is restoring Abraham's honor. To take another man's wife in the ancient Near East was to dishonor them, right? He's dishonored Abraham inadvertently, albeit. Yes, he's dishonored Abraham. But now he's going to say, I'm going to restore Abraham's honor. Why? How? By giving him this gift to sort of atone for honor that has been marred. I'm going to give him the pick of the land. Now, this is quite different than how than, uh, the Pharaoh responds. Abraham, get out of Egypt. Leave. Get out of here. I don't want to see you. Here, Abimelech is showing tremendous kindness. What this shows to me about Abimelech is he took God's word to him very, very seriously. Right? He took God's word so seriously, he says, not only will I restore to Abraham, his wife, but I will go above and beyond to show kindness to this man. Verse 16, and unto Sarah he said, behold, I have given thy brother, there's a little bit of sarcasm in there, yeah, I've given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver, a thousand shekels of silver. Behold, he is to thee, or it will be to thee, a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other, thus she was reproved. So he restores Abraham's honor. Now he restores Sarah's honor. Here's what's going on. He's saying, I am swearing before God that I did not violate Sarah, that she has not been tainted or marred in any way, and I'm proving it by giving a gift of a thousand pieces of silver. See, people could look at Sarah and be like, hmm, she spent a night over at Abimelech's harem. Like, we wonder what really went on over there. He's saying, by giving this a thousand, these a thousand pieces of silver, this is my pledge a very serious pledge, a very enormous pledge that, that she is not tainted in any way, that she's not guilty in any way of any kinds of sin. By the way, a thousand pieces of silver, that's a lot of money. Uh, we're, we're dealing with around 25 pounds of silver. Right? That's a lot of silver that would be worth a whole lot of money today. Talk about the price of Bitcoin. Well, the price of silver, if you actually had 25 pounds of actual silver coinage, be incredible amount of money. He says, this will be a covering of the eyes. Now, what does that phrase mean? People who would be maybe wanting to sort of look askance at you won't have reason to do that anymore. People who would give disparaging looks, it covers the disparaging looks because there's this pledge that's been given that proves your innocence. 
Now, the phrase translated at the end of verse 16, thus she was reproved, could also go this way, before all men you are cleared. And I think that's the sense of it, is saying, Sarah, you've not done anything immoral here, aside from the lie that was told, but nothing inappropriate in the relationship has happened. Now, why does this matter? The very next chapter, a baby will be born. And we need to have the certainty that this baby belongs to Abraham and not Abimelech. And so this is important in the narrative, the big story, to say God is faithful to keep his promises. And here's Abimelech inadvertently playing a role. And God also restores Abimelech, verse 17. Abraham prayed unto God. He takes that role of intercessor. And God healed Abimelech, his wife, his maidservants, and they bear children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech. Through a word of intercession, God heals and through a word of intercession, this is, this is interesting, God opens up these wombs that had been closed. Now, if you're Sarah, you're thinking, I've been waiting for years and years and years and years to have a child. God's promised that one would come. Could it be that the same God who opened up the wombs of Abimelech's household could open mine? And the answer is indeed yes in Genesis 21, which we'll see next week. So let me just conclude with some points of application here from the story. Number one. Even the most mature Christian is susceptible to besetting sins. Age is no guarantee of faithfulness. I know we have some uh, range of ages here in our church this morning. You say, I'm older and I'm just not struggling with sin the way I used to. Age is no guarantee of faithfulness. Be on your guard. Two, if you have an area of, of weakness, take active steps to guard yourself. Abraham had this weakness and deception. I think he forgot his weakness. Didn't protect himself. Number three, learn the lessons of the past. Sometimes, like Abraham, we're going to be forced to repeat grades in the school of hard knocks. But with humility, we can learn the lessons that God teaches us through our mistakes. Number four, forgetfulness and failure go together. See, I think if Abraham had regularly thanked God, God, thank you so much for delivering me in Egypt, and regularly thanked God for his deliverance from past sins, he probably would have been less susceptible to this sin. But when we think, ah, that deliverance is in the past, I did that, we don't thank God, and we open ourselves up for failure. Forgetfulness and failure go together. And number next, number five, God is faithful even when we are not. Abraham's deception, yes, through the fulfillment of the promise into question, but God acted to ensure that, this, that these promises were fulfilled anyway. Let me conclude this way. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Father, thank you that your grace abounds. Even in our failure, even in our faithlessness, even in our unfaithfulness, we praise you for being...